0: You've got shit, I've got shit, we've all got shit, so let's therapize that shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. Please note, I am not a therapist. I cannot and do not diagnose anyone or prescribe anything. This is just me, someone who struggles with mental illness, emotions and intrusive thoughts, sharing what skills I've used and how I've used them. Also, trigger warning, in this podcast, I talk about sensitive topics including mental illness, suicidal ideation, self-harm, rape, childhood sexual assault, trauma, and more. I also swear here and there, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome, welcome. We're going to be therapizing some shit today. Emphasis on shit. I'll get into that in a second, but before all of that, I want to give a shout out to my latest Patreon donor. I guess Patreon patron. My sister Anne is an Emotion Combo Platter donor level, so a huge thank you to... (laughs) like, don't use any nicknames, don't use any nicknames. A huge thank you to Anne, who I never actually call Anne, but there we go. And uh, yeah, if you're interested in supporting me on Patreon, uh, there's a link in the description. There's a variety of levels you can choose from. Right now, the perks you get are a shout out on the podcast, but I will be adding more as more donors get added. Okay, so getting into today's episode... As you may have guessed from the title, I'm gonna be talking about my trauma anniversaries today. I'll be using a variety of DBT skills. And if you're new to the podcast, DBT stands for Dialectic Behavioral Therapy. It's the type of therapy that I have found most practically useful as far as things that I could actually use day to day that make a radical difference in my ability to function. Um, Whenever I am quoting from the DBT manual, which is, there's a PDF in the description, you can also buy it as a book or workbook. Whenever I'm quoting from that, I will sound like I'm in a bathroom or a massive and gorgeous cathedral. No, it is very much like a bathroom. It doesn't sound nearly cool enough to be in a cathedral but I turn on a little bit of reverb so that it is obvious when I am reading something rather than sharing just my own thoughts. Another thing to note before we dive in, there's going to be a point where I ask myself a question and then I sit with it and I left a very long 15 second pause in there on purpose Uh, because I wanted to demonstrate how long it actually took me to access an answer to that question. It was not immediate, and it felt a little strange to chop that down and ask myself a question and answer it immediately when that wasn't actually what happened. So if you get to a point where there's a long pause, wait it out. I will come back. I'm recording this intro on January 31st, and I recorded the bulk of the episode you're about to listen to on January 3rd, and then the second part of it on January 4th. So it's been almost a month. Alrighty, let's go ahead and dive in, shall we? Okay, so I just finished a, I don't know what the word is, Oh whopping therapy session, a intense therapy session, I guess, I, uh, well, let me kind of start at the beginning. I'm recording this on January 3rd, 2022. And January is kind of a hard month for me because I have a bunch of traumaversaries, which is a word that my therapist used today that I'd never heard before but an anniversary of trauma, a traumaversary. I've got one on the 21st. I've got one on the 27th. I've got one on the 31st. And then I have one on February 3rd. Three of those are all from the same year. And the one on the 27th is from a different year. So January is usually a tough month it's kind of like having a low grade flu the entire month or really bad pms and i use those as examples because with pms specifically there doesn't have to be a a triggering event to have a very strong emotional reaction there's kind of just a low grade high level of low-grade, high-level. That doesn't make any sense. But there's a low-grade emotion mind running kind of all the time. And that is my experience of January. So that's what I talked about with my therapist just now. And there's a couple issues. I went back and actually looked at, well, back to when my symptoms started. So January of 2015, would be the first January where there's an anniversary during my time of having symptoms. So that's seven years of Januaries, and I have a pretty intense, persistent pattern of not doing well in January. I had several self-harm relapses in Januaries, there was one January where I came down with the flu and it turned into pneumonia and I developed pleurisy and cracked a couple ribs. Yeah, Januarys are just not a good time for me to be alive. A lot of the time it kind of feels like staring down the barrel of a gun. And even if there's not a specific event that I can say, oh this is what happened today that triggered a strong emotion, it really does. It feels like staring down the barrel of a gun or sitting on a time bomb. Like there's just, I have a lot of anxiety, but it doesn't occur to me as anxiety. It's low-grade rage, I think. I'm just kind of angry. And it's not grumpy. It's not curmudgeon It's, it is like sitting on a time bomb that's ticking, a ticking time bomb even and it doesn't take much for me to explode. So I was telling my therapist about this. This is our first January together. And one of the priorities of our session was to cope ahead and address that, knowing that it's going to be a rough month, look at what we can do to kind of resource me up, get me Um, resourced so that I can be effective. So first off, I want to talk a little bit about what COPE AHEAD is. COPE AHEAD is an emotion regulation skill. And in the emotion regulation section of the DBT manual, there are kind of four major sections. It starts with understanding and naming emotions. And then the next section is changing emotional responses. And the next section is Reducing vulnerability to emotion mind and building a life worth living. So that's kind of what we focused on in therapy today is looking at ways for me to cope ahead, knowing that this is going to be a really intense month, um, ways to prepare for that. So as to reduce my vulnerability and cope ahead is an emotion regulation skill It's a way to reduce vulnerability to emotion mind. Uh, Emotion mind, we haven't really talked about this in a lot of detail before. Uh, If you want more information on emotion mind, it's in the DBT handout or handbook. Um, It's in the mindfulness section, mindfulness handout three. There's two main states of mind, thinking mind or reasonable mind, logical mind, or emotion mind. Emotion mind is run by our limbic system, whereas uh, thinking or computing mind is run by our free frontal cortex. So emotion mind is, and this is me reading from the mindfulness handout three, emotion mind is hot, mood dependent, emotion focused. When in emotion mind, you're ruled by your moods, feelings, and urges to do or say things. Facts, reason, and logic are not important. And I added a bunch of other notes. How I can tell when I'm in emotion mind it's extreme or manic, a really strong anger, sadness, fear, hurt, happiness, love, euphoria, bonding, anticipation, or hope, fun. Emotion mind is reactive. I feel out of control. There's a lot of desperation and urgency. It's very black or white. When I'm in emotion mind, I'm also assigning blame. I'm mind reading. So I'm trying to figure out what other people are thinking. I'm overgeneralizing. And I'm catastrophizing. Emotion mind is a lot. And this is a note from my original DBT skills group instructor. Emotion mind is really useful because emotions promote action. Emotions are our first Wi-Fi. They network us together. So that's emotion mind and cope ahead is a skill to reduce our vulnerability to emotion mind. So we've, I've talked about the e-wheel, the emotion wheel. It's emotion regulation handout five. I have my preferred version of it linked in the description and it's also on the website. Emotion vulnerability is how your, your emotion wheel starts spinning. It's the ease at which it starts spinning and the ease at which it continues to self-perpetuate and spin on and on and on. And there's a lot of things that can contribute to our vulnerability to emotion mind, you know, how much sleep you've had, if you're sick, if you're dealing with a lot of stress, if you're in a situation where you don't have a lot of skill, all of these things can contribute to how easily our emotion wheel starts spinning and how easily it continues to spin. So to reduce those vulnerabilities, COPE AHEAD is a skill that has us be prepared for a challenging emotional situation. So, emotion regulation handout 19 has COPE AHEAD on it. It starts with, describe the situation that is likely to prompt problem behavior. In my case, it's my trauma versaries. Check the facts. Be specific in describing the situation. Name the emotions and actions likely to interfere with using your skills. So, checking the facts and being specific, I have four anniversaries in the month of January, the beginning of February, and they're all trauma anniversaries, sexual assault or rape, and the emotions that I'm expecting were well, really the the Problem behavior that I'm most worried about is a self-harm relapse because that has been a common thing that has happened in the month of January for me, a common behavior that I have done. I self-harm usually from a place of shame, so shame is an emotion that I'm expecting to have. I also am expecting a lot of sadness and anger to come up. And the anger is really frustration. Part of the problem with my traumaversaries is they're invisible. This is a persistent issue that I have in therapy and in being skillful is that oftentimes it is invisible. It's not like having the skill of being a concert pianist or being able to, I don't know, jump 12 feet in the air. You can't just whip it out and demonstrate it in the moment and have people look at it and go, oh, that's really challenging. I can see everything that would be involved in being able to do that. And a lot of these skills, the usage of them are invisible. It's work that I'm doing on myself when I'm by myself. There's nobody around to watch. And There's also the added bonus of it's really hard for people to understand how this is skillful, how using these skills is actually skillful. Like if you point at Everest and say, hey, I climbed that mountain, even if people can't fully understand what it's going to feel like to have, you know, 80 pounds strapped to your back while you're climbing a mountain and you're not getting enough oxygen because your elevation is so high, at least most people can understand what it feels like to have to climb a hill, and then to imagine doing a very, very large hill in the snow. like It's something we can grasp. If your skill is throwing a basketball from center court, most people, I think, understand what it's like to throw a basketball. And if not that, at least what it's like to throw a thing at a target. And they can understand that distance. So there's... There's like real-world applications that have people be able to empathize. (sighs) Traumaversaries are different. There is some uh, like common analogous things, I think, like breakup anniversaries or the anniversary of a death of a loved one, or even the anniversary of a, anniversary, the birthday of a loved one who's died. Those are recurring events that trigger strong emotions. So that I think is the closest analogy I have to what a trauma versary feels like. But really, it's hard to explain what it feels like. And it's hard to explain what it takes to survive it. I can feel very, very frustrated, annoyed, hopeless that people don't get it. And it's also very isolating. Because I was the only one there. Well, no, there was another person there, which is why it was traumatic. But by and large, like I was the only one there experiencing trauma. So there's not like a group experience of, hey, we all lost our grandfather. We're all sad in the family. Like it's a group experience of sadness. It's just a singular individual experience of trauma. And that's very isolating. And it's also weird to have four of them, like in a two-week span of time. So even getting the first one done, there's more coming. It's playing Russian roulette, but there's four bullets in the chambers. (laughs) Instead of just one, it's just like, oh, it's not that we don't know if it's going to happen. It's Oh, it's definitely going to happen. It's going to happen four times. And they tend to add on to each other and they interact in really strange, unpredictable ways. Like there was a year where I went through all four anniversaries and got to the end. It was like February 4th, the day after the last one, when I realized, oh my God, that all just happened and I didn't even notice. And that was so upsetting to me that I didn't acknowledge them in any way. No one else acknowledged them in any way. Like, hmm. <laughs> It felt bad. I think what I was feeling was a lot of grief. Yeah, it was just it was a lot of grief, and I had a relapse, a self harm relapse, uh, because it felt like the I was having the thought that it was the appropriate way to mark those anniversaries. That is not an accurate thought, and it is the thought that I had at the time. And there's a lot of other things that interplay with it. So one of them. Uh, was the weekend before the Super Bowl. And I was in the city where the Super Bowl was going to be played that year. And so seeing ads or hearing ads or hearing people plan the Super Bowl parties will have me go, oh my God, that's right, that's coming up. And it's usually a shock. Even just listening to people talk about the playoffs, because I know the playoffs end in the Super Bowl. Another one happened on the day of the women's march. And seeing newspaper articles or think pieces about, hey, this thing happened. The anniversary, there have been anniversary events that will trigger stuff. There's just a lot of landmines to navigate. There's a lot of places and ways that I can be reminded of something and not be prepared. So those are kind of all the things that are going on that can interfere with me using my skills. No, that's not all that's going on. The other thing that I experience during anniversary months is this sense of I have the thought, seriously, we're still dealing with this. I have some judgment over the fact that I'm still impacted. I have judgment over how I've addressed them in the past. It's very confusing because on the one hand, I want to just be like totally fine about it. And on the other hand, it feels necessary to honor them in some way. Because dealing with the PTSD from those events has been such a significant part of the last, oh my God, 10 years. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> this 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 year is going to be. Ten year the ten year anniversary of the first one. Fuck. That just occurred to me. Oh my god. Um Okay. Oh. What's really interesting is what I just experienced did not feel like an emotion. It felt like a a body reaction, similar to like if you hit your funny bone and you get like that tingly sensation in your arm, or if you stub your toe and there's that split second between when you know it's happened and when you feel the pain of it, it's pain. It was pain, what I just felt, what I'm feeling, not sadness. And it, it just felt very strongly for a second, like touching a freshly healed scar that's still a little sensitive. Yikes. Okay. Um, Right. I want to read for you real quick. There's a graphic that I saw. Ooh. Okay. This is, this is it. This is from Gay Miles Edgeworth. I think it's a Tumblr post, but I can't tell what it is. This is what it says. I think sometimes trauma survivors fall into this place where it's very hard to believe that anything that happened to you was that bad. And the only proof you have that it was that bad is that you're suffering. And so healing can be really scary and difficult because it means giving up the only tangible evidence you have that you were traumatized in the first place. Fuck. I felt that in my teeth. So... That's why these anniversaries are very confusing because on the one hand, I really do want it to be fine. Like I want to go through January and be like, it's all right. I'm good. I'm solid. I'm healed. And on the other hand, I need these anniversaries to be observed and honored because if I'm not observing and honoring them, I have no proof. I'm having the thought that I have no proof that any of this actually happened. I'm having a lot of thoughts right now. So I'm doing a distress tolerance skill right now, mindfulness of current thoughts, just being aware of my thoughts as thoughts. There are no good or bad thoughts. Our brain thinks it's what it does. And oftentimes, I mean, I certainly have the thought that if I think it, it must be true. And there's a lot of things I think that aren't necessarily true. I can have the thought I'm a pink elephant. It doesn't make it true. Mindfulness of current thoughts is distress tolerance handout 15. By the way, I'm having a thought. This is getting very confusing. I don't want to confuse people and I'm trying very hard to actually identify my thoughts as thoughts, Uh, not suppress any of them or judge them. That's actually the first step of mindfulness to current thoughts is to observe your thoughts as waves coming and going, not suppressing thoughts, not judging thoughts, acknowledging their presence not keeping them around, not analyzing thoughts, practicing willingness, stepping back and observing thoughts as they run in and out of your mind. That's step one. So I'm observing myself have the thought that if I don't observe or honor them in some way, it'll be like the trauma never happened. And that there's some anxiety, some like desperation An attachment like no, 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 no. We have it has to be acknowledged. It has to be acknowledged somehow. I must acknowledge it. Just very, very emotion mind. That's one of the things I read earlier. That I can tell when I'm in emotion mind, when I'm reactive, if there's desperation or urgency. But like that quote I just read about suffering, and how healing can actually feel really threatening. It feels threatening to be okay in the month of January. I'm going to read that quote again because it's so good. This is Gay Miles Edgeworth saying, I think sometimes trauma survivors fall into this place where it's very hard to believe that anything that happened to you was that bad. And the only proof you have that it was that bad is that you're suffering. And so healing can be really scary and difficult because it means giving up the only tangible evidence you have that you were traumatized in the first place. I think I have the judgment that if, if it's... Something you could heal from, it must not have been that bad. Like when you hear about somebody who broke their back and they're fine now, I have the thought, oh, it must not have been that bad of a break. Because it really like if you break your back, you know, you could be paralyzed. So if you're okay, it couldn't have been that bad of a break. And of course, that may be true with back injuries. I actually don't know. But there's all sorts of like horrific injuries that people heal from. I mean, people get limbs reattached. <laughs> people have compound fractures of bones and wear a cast and have to learn how to walk again and then are okay. And I definitely have the thought that if, I'm, if I can heal from it, it must not have been that bad, which is factually not accurate. And this is, of course, a reaction to lifelong invalidation of course I would be attached to my suffering because it's the only way I can prove that my trauma ever happened, or I I have the thought that it's the only way. I don't think people will believe me. I think I have to provide documentation in order to convince people that my pain is real. That is absolutely lifelong invalidation speaking. Like that's the belief of somebody who doesn't trust themselves because they've been told not to trust themselves. What this whole belief does is it invalidates myself. Even in the absence of other people invalidating me, I'm invalidating myself. I am self-invalidating, <sighs> which is just not effective. And I'm having the thought that not healing from it is a badge of honor. That's not right. That's not what I mean. Let me, let me see if I can find another way here. I keep having that thought that I need to not be okay in January. And then I also have the thought, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance right now, that I actually don't want to be 80 years old and still not be able to get through the month of January without self-harming. I want to find a way to be skillful and also acknowledge my anniversaries, which leads us back to cope ahead. So I read step one, which is describe the situation. Step two is decide what coping or problem-solving skills you want to use in the situation. Be specific. Write out in detail how you will cope with the situation and with your emotions and action urges. So that's actually the homework that my therapist gave me. Because one of the thoughts I'm having that is likely to interfere with me using skills is that I have to suffer in order to acknowledge these anniversaries. That's a thought I'm having. My therapist gave me this homework. They said, take a look at and give yourself credit for mountains that you've summited in therapy, in healing beyond the last two years, which are just kind of a shit show. That's a judgment, judgment, judgment. Ask what work have I already done and been successful at? What is my mountain range of recovery? I could even make it into a piece of art, <laughs> like draw it out, take a look at and give myself credit for mountains that I've summited. That is going to be a thing I'm going to be thinking about, and I will talk about it on this podcast because I think it's, I don't know if I've talked about the competency hierarchy before. If not, I'm going to repeat it now. And I will actually put a graphic of this up on the website. I'll link it in the description and I'll put it on my social media too. You start off with unconsciously incompetent. Unconsciously incompetent. You don't know what you don't know. These are your blind spots. And so if I ask you, what do you not know that you don't know? You won't be able to answer this question because they're your blind spots. It's blissful ignorance, right? You're blissfully unaware of the full scope of what you don't know. The... Next rung of the ladder is consciously incompetent. You do know what you don't know. Like for me, I know that I don't speak Russian. I know that I can't play the flute. I know that I don't know how to do the Argentinian tango. These are things that I know that I don't know how to do. And typically going from the first rung where you're blissfully ignorant to the second rung, the second rung is incredibly uncomfortable. I think of freshmen in college uh, where you're like brand new and you're like, oh my God, the full scope of things I don't know how to do. This is your first time living without your parents. This is the first time being responsible for making sure you get all your meals. This may be the first time that you're having, you're in complete control of your own schedule. Um, This is the first time you may be encountering calculus or differential equations or organic chemistry, blah, 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 blah that's a really uncomfortable place to be. So it's the things you know you don't know how to do. That's consciously incompetent. The next rung of the ladder is consciously competent. You know that you know how to do it. So if somebody asked me what do you know how to do, joy? I'm like, "Well, I know how to type. I know how to drive. I know how to lift weights. I know how to podcast." I know how to add in my head. I do mental math. Whatever skills you're consciously competent around, those people tend to be the best teachers because they actually know that they know it. They remember how they learned how to get there. And it's important to note that a single person can be on all of these rungs at the same time, just in different skills. So there's skills that I'm consciously incompetent. There's things I know I don't know how to do. There's other things that I do know I know how to do. And then the final rung is unconsciously competent. These are the things that are so automatic that you don't even think about. Um, like if I asked you what you're good at, if somebody asked me what I was good at, I wouldn't list brushing my teeth or tying my shoes because I don't actually remember a time when I didn't know how to do those things. One of my biggest unconsciously competent things is around graphic design. Like I never learned how to use white space and how to use typography. It feels to me at least that it came to me automatically. But I can look back at like stuff that I did in sixth grade that indicates there was a time when I didn't know this, but I don't remember learning it. It just happens. I don't know how to teach it because I'm like, isn't this like, don't you just get it? Whatever skill you're unconsciously competent in, you tend to be a very poor teacher. (laughs) Because I don't understand how somebody else doesn't get justification or kerning or, you know, bleed, full bleed or any of that. Like, how do you not get it? How do you not look at a page and go, oh, here's all the things I would change? So I'm a really bad instructor for graphic design. So one of the things that I love about DBT is we have diary cards, and every day you write down where your emotions were at, like a scale of one to five for different emotions of where your urges were at. If you engage in any target behavior, like self-harm or lying, or everybody has different target behavior, I guess. It also has you track what skills do you used each day. And one of the lovely things about that is it actually prevents things from becoming unconsciously competent. It forces me to remember what skills I used so that I don't just do them and not acknowledge them. Because I think the acknowledging is really important. The acknowledging that I use skills is what has me relate to myself as somebody who is skillful. Like I am actually skillful at that thing. I know how to validate. I know how to be nonjudgmental. I know how to identify my emotions. I know how to do opposite action, like all of these things. When you become so good at it that it happens automatically without thinking, we stop relating to ourselves as skillful at that thing. That's part of what this therapy homework is doing for me. I'm going to be looking at my past mountains that I've summited in therapy, things that I've healed from ways that i used to be that i am no longer and identify what work i've already successfully done which i think is going to be important to address this thought that i have that i'm never going to get better and that january is going to be like this all the time i think it's also important to practice this to to identify ways that i've been successful at using skills because It's a kind of a check the fact because I'm having the thought that the only way to acknowledge and honor these anniversaries is to suffer. I think it's important that I practice acknowledging them and being skillful around acknowledging them. I think it's important to acknowledge just ways in the past that I have honored my pain, honored the trauma and the impact that it had on me and validated it without becoming suffering. Because reading this thing again from Gay Miles Edgeworth, I think sometimes trauma survivors fall into this place where it's very hard to believe that anything that happened to you was that bad. And the only proof you have that it was that bad is that you're suffering. And so healing can be really scary and difficult because it means giving up the only tangible evidence you have that you were traumatized in the first place. So there's some assumptions being made here. Like these are, these are not facts. I'm having the thought that the only proof I have that it was that bad is that I'm suffering. I do have other proof that it was that bad. I don't have to be actively suffering right this second. And it says, and so healing can be really scary and difficult because it means giving up the only tangible evidence you have. I'm having the thought that healing means giving up The only tangible evidence I have that I was traumatized. And what's interesting here is that clearly I have the thought that I need proof, which again is lifelong invalidation talking. I have the thought that I need data and documentation and that I'll need to demonstrate my reality in a way that others will accept and not question. I have other evidence. I have words, I guess. I think that's part of the reason why stories are so important. And so being able to tell my story, I think, is important. And that's what's going to have me be able to honor the trauma without sinking back into it, I guess. So I'm going to take a pause here, but I'm going to come back and talk more about coping ahead and um, my therapy homework. Okay, I am back. It is the following day. It is January 4th. I'm getting back to my therapy homework, which is to take a look at and give myself credit for mountains that I've summited, the work I've already done and been successful at. What is my mountain range of recovery? Okay, we're going to start with going over Copahead again. Just very broadly, Copahead on Emotion Regulation Handout 19 is... Describe the situation that is likely to prompt problem behavior. Decide what coping or problem-solving skills you want to use in the situation. Imagine the situation in your mind as vividly as possible. Rehearse in your mind, coping effectively. And finally, practice relaxation after rehearsing. Now, each of these have kind of sub-bullet points, more specific information on how to do each of those steps. But getting back to... situation that is likely to prompt problem behavior. This is very challenging for me because with anniversaries, it's not a specific event. It's not like, oh, if I see an ex at the grocery store, I expect to have these emotions come up. It's just kind of a month of dread and discomfort and being kind of just short-tempered and irritable and having kind of a low-grade sense of dread, like a dread fever, almost, that's just ongoing. Seriously, after recording yesterday and realizing that it was my 10-year anniversary coming up, I felt like I had the flu for the rest of the day. Like I felt exhausted, drained, like I had a cry hangover, even though I hadn't been crying all that much. So it's challenging to actually figure out How to be specific in describing the situation. Because step one is describe the situation that is likely to prompt problem behavior. Check the facts. Be specific in describing the situation. Name the emotions and actions likely to interfere with using your skills. And I get stuck here because I actually don't know what the prompting event is going to be. The prompting event is the anniversary. Like the January 21st exists and is coming up. January 27th exists and is coming up. January 31st exists and is coming up. And February 3rd exists and is coming up. And that's kind of the prompting event, I guess. I have a lot of thoughts around the anniversaries. I have a lot of judgment that I'm being affected by anniversaries to begin with. I'm judging myself. I had just texted a friend about trauma and And said, I'm like, body, you're okay. You've healed. Calm the fuck down. We don't need to be having this reaction every year. And yet this is the reaction my body is having. So I think another aspect of the prompting event that the anniversaries are coming up is that I'm judging the way my body is reacting to those anniversaries. And the judgment is not serving me. Because I end up being annoyed, uh, having shame, resisting rather than accepting that this is just how January goes. So emotions and actions that are likely to interfere with me using my skills, well, certainly judgment is is an action that is likely to interfere. Shame is an emotion that's likely to interfere. Anger is an emotion that is likely to interfere. Judgment... Let me talk about judgment for a second here. I'm flipping through. It's a mindfulness skill. Non-judgmentally is a mindfulness skill. I want to talk for just a second about what judgments are. More broadly, this is on mindfulness handout five, but a lot of what I'm going to be saying is not actually on the handout. It's my notes from my first DBT instructor. He defined judgment as aggressive certainty which I think is actually quite lovely. Judgments are things like good, bad, should or shouldn't, fair or unfair, right or wrong, black and white, always, never, all or nothing, name calling. I judge me, I judge others, and I judge reality. And certainly with anniversaries, I'm judging myself and I'm judging reality. The problem with judgments are that they're not based on fact they're based on interpretations. Another problem is they're immutable, like they don't tend to change. I certainly notice that I'll label something as good or bad or fair or unfair. And then even with additional data, I don't tend to change my judgment because <laughs> it's aggressive certainty. And another problem with judgments is that it prevents understanding of others and ourselves which I certainly am noticing because I'm judging myself about having reactions to anniversaries rather than getting curious and asking, okay, judgment, what are you trying to do for me? A judgment, this is another thing from my DBT instructor, a judgment is a survival skill that has gone off the rails. Judgments are trying to keep us safe. So if I were to look at this non-judgmentally, A question I could ask is, what is this judgment trying to do for me? So I'm judging myself for having feelings and being affected by the anniversaries of my rapes and sexual assaults, of some of my rapes and sexual assaults, because not all of them happened in the next month. Okay, I'm going to sit with this for a second and ask that question, what is this judgment trying to do for me? so the first thing that comes to mind is it's trying to protect me from feeling hurt from feeling pain or from suffering and the reason judgments are survival skills that have gone off the rails emphasis on gone off the rails is because usually what the judgment is trying to do for me it doesn't actually accomplish that in the long term it may accomplish it in the short term but it definitely doesn't accomplish it in the long term cuz I've talked about this before, that pain without acceptance is suffering. Not accepting my pain is what has me suffer. And that is a thing from, from the DBT manual. Distress Tolerance Handout 11, titled Radical Acceptance, says that rejecting reality turns pain into suffering. My lack of acceptance slash my judgment of how my body reacts to anniversaries is causing suffering. And what I don't understand is this pain that I'm trying to avoid by judging. I don't even know what the pain is. I'm like, body, the trauma's over. Like, I'm not being attacked every January. I'm not being assaulted every January. And we've actually done a lot of healing around all of these. A lot of effective work. So why are you body freaking out every january i don't know if it's like it's a habit january rolls around and suddenly my body's like well this is what we do every year in january like well we don't have to keep doing it anymore it's not a tradition at least it's not a tradition i would like to uphold and maintain like i honestly i don't know what this judgment is trying to accomplish for me all it's doing is making me miserable so, getting back to our cope ahead here, name the emotions and actions likely to interfere with using my skills. Emotions, certainly shame and anger, frustration specifically, and actions, judgment is likely to interfere with me using my skills. And then the next step, step two, is to decide what coping or problem solving skills you want to use in this situation. Be specific. Write out in detail how you will cope with the situation and with your emotions and action urges. Well, so one of the thoughts I'm having right now is that I notice a trend. I either get sick or I have a self-harm relapse pretty much every anniversary since my PTSD symptoms started. I think this being sick is like I'm, I'm not expressing my emotions. I'm suppressing them. And that suppression manifests itself as illness because it's, it's causing my body so much stress to have all of those emotions pent up and not acknowledge them, not process them, etc. And then the self-harm, at least more recently, the self-harm urges have stemmed from wanting to in some way acknowledge that the anniversaries matter And this is why I have all this cognitive dissonance because on the one hand, I'm like, dude, they're done. We've done all this exposure therapy. You're not triggered constantly. Like, can we be healed now? So like, I'm of two minds about it. On the one hand, I'm like, I'm done. We don't need to keep acknowledging these. We can move on with our lives. And on the other hand, I desperately want to acknowledge them. And I want to acknowledge the impact that they've had on my life because even if I'm healed, it still has impacted my life and changed the course of my life, certainly. Like I've actually had to leave jobs because of my PTSD. I've made friends because of my PTSD. Like a lot of my skills, a lot of my interpersonal effectiveness, a lot of my relationships have been impacted by the therapy that I've gone to as a result of PTSD. So if I'm in wise mind, that actually feels more wise-minded. Thinking mind is the part where I'm like, okay, we're done, we've healed, let's get over it, move on. That feels more like thinking mind. So I wanna talk for a second about what those are. I've talked about emotion mind at the beginning of the episode. This is mindfulness handout three in the DBT manual, which is wise mind, state of mind. There are two kind of disparate states. In the DBT manual, it calls it Reasonable Mind. I don't like that title. Reasonable carries with it judgment. Like you're being unreasonable is a judgment, or at least it lands that way to me. Using reason is something that, at least in the United States, is lauded as a positive. Being emotional is a negative. And so I like to use the word thinking or computing mind. So you've got thinking or computing mind, which happens in our prefrontal cortex. And then you've got the emotion mind, which is managed by our, our limbic system. And the Venn diagram, and I have posted this on Instagram and it's up on the website. There's a link in the description. The Venn diagram that is in the DPT manual shows that wise mind is the intersection of thinking and emotion mind. I prefer that wise mind is the entirety of, of thinking and emotion mind. So it would be a circle that goes around both of those circles. It's fully emotion mind and fully thinking mind. So how I can tell that I'm in thinking mind as compared and contrasted, my high school English teachers would be so happy, compared and contrasted to emotion mind, which I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, thinking mind is cool, rational, task-focused, When in thinking mind, you are ruled by facts, reason, logic, pragmatics, values and feelings are not important. And that's what's actually written on the page. Now I'm going to just mention kind of notes that I made from my DBT instructor. So how I can tell that I'm in thinking mind, I'm problem solving, stuff gets done, I'm focused, judging, insistent, making meaning, interpreting task-oriented, frantic, controlling, black or white, planning, on task, and ignoring feelings. What then is wise mind? Wise mind is the wisdom within each person, seeing the value of both reason and emotion, bringing the left and the right brain together, the middle path. And that's what's written on the page. And then my notes about that from my instructor are... Wise Mind is fusing all of my thinking and all of my emotions and honoring both thoughts and emotions. It's validating. It's dialectic. It considers both the long and short term. I can tell that I'm in Wise Mind because I can see the machinery. I have perspective. I'm effective. I'm balanced and flexible. I'm calm. I'm accepting, dialectical, and gray as distinct from black and white. I mentioned being kind of having some cognitive dissonance and being of kind of two minds where one mind is like, hey, you've healed. Let's move on. Why are we revisiting this every year? That feels more like thinking mind. That feels more. I think that's more thinking mind talking because it is controlling. It's judging and it's invalidating. It invalidates the emotions and the experiences that my body is having every January. Whereas the other part of me that wants to be like, hey, can we honor that these events happened and that they had an impact on my life and that they're significant? They're a significant part of my story. Let's not ignore them. That feels like wise mind. And then there is actually another little tiny part that's like, hey, let's self-harm because that's a good way to demonstrate how much pain we're in. That's very emotion mind. So to summarize those three states again, my thinking mind is like, hey, we've healed. We're done. Move on. Get over it. My emotion mind is like, hey, let's self-harm so we can prove to ourselves how much pain we're in because these things mattered. And then wise mind kind of the middle path of those two things is, Hey, these things did matter. And there's a way to honor them. That is not ignoring them. And it's also not self harming. There's a way to honor these anniversaries and hold space for the emotions that come up and the body sensations that come up. There's a way to acknowledge the significance of them in my story and in kind of shaping who I am now and (laughs) the thoughts I'm having in reaction to that is that I really don't have the words to describe what they were like because my wise mind is like there's a way to honor this like we can use our words and my emotion mind is like yeah there aren't any words there's no way to explain to people what that was like and I mentioned that to my therapist And then proceeded to explain what it was like. And afterwards, my therapist was like, Joy, you just explained what it was like. And I thought you did it very effectively. And I think the challenge, it's so much easier to explain what it was like to my therapist or to my close friends who experience mental illness and who have experienced trauma because they get it. Like they meet me halfway. I don't have to come up with every single word Every single description, the perfect adjective, they actually are able to, like I just said, meet me halfway. I can explain a little bit and then they can do the rest. They're like, oh, totally. I can totally understand why you would be having these emotions come up and why you would be having these body sensations because this is the way that thing impacted you. Like Talking to people who are validating kind of feels like playing Mad Libs with somebody who is a mind reader. If you've ever played Mad Libs with somebody who's just not good at the game, it's incredibly boring. Like, you ask them for an adjective, and they'll say, good. You ask them for a noun, and they'll say, ball. This reminds me of one of the more awkward moments in the the show The Office between Angela and Andy. So I'm just going to play that here. Okay. Adjective. Um, tall. No, no. Uh, nice good one okay you ready Mm Mhm. the tall man entered the nice building to visit a very nice man sit down mr smith could i interest you in any good cat food (laughs) It's, it's a man eating cat food what about a cat eating man food oh angela So that's a lovely example of just like she's filling in the blanks, but really ineffectively and in a way that doesn't make the game fun. (laughs) You know, there's a dance that happens when somebody is super, super validating where I give a little, they fill in some blanks that helps me understand myself better I can explain more. They fill in the blanks that are left from that. That helps me understand myself. Like it's this self-perpetuating cycle where somebody else's validation helps me understand myself better, which is a huge relief. And it also takes off some of the pressure that I feel to find exactly the right word. I spent a semester in France in this tiny little town that was not Paris, And in one of my classes, I met another student who had spent a year in England. So she understood what it was like to be in a foreign country whose language she didn't speak. And she spoke a little bit of English after having spent that year there. So when she and I would talk, I could guess at words and she could help me find the right word because she kind of knew what I was trying to get at and how an English speaker would guess which was very different from speaking to other folks who did not speak English. Like, they couldn't meet me halfway. I had some friends who were Malaysian. French was our common language. They spoke their own language. I spoke English. And the only way we could communicate was in French. Because neither of us, I didn't speak Malay, and they didn't speak English. So those conversations were much more difficult because like I couldn't guess at what they were trying to say. They couldn't guess at what I was trying to say. So I think validation is so lovely because when my friends validate, they kind of come alongside me and they're like, hey, you don't have to find the perfect word. You can do the best you can and I will help you find the perfect word. Like we'll do it together. So like in talking to my therapist and in sharing with my therapist what it was like, I don't have to explain to them in exactly the right words, they get it and they can fill in the blanks and they can extrapolate it and be like, oh, if you said you were feeling anxious, I know what anxiety looks like in somebody who has PTSD. So they finish painting the picture of my experience. The, the challenge that I have and why I don't feel like I have the words to communicate what it was like is because there are times when I need to describe it to my parents or describe it to a partner who doesn't get it. And that's when I feel super, super ineffective. That's when I start having the thought that there are no words to describe it because they're never going to understand. I kind of wonder if it's like casting pearls before swine, which is a really insulting idiom. But just like, if it would be as ineffective as me trying to speak English to my Malaysian friends in France. Like, I can... Be super descriptive in English, and they're still not going to get it because they don't speak English. And they could be super descriptive and incredibly specific and really, really intentional in their language in Malay. I'm going to look it up, actually, to make sure that that's the language that they spoke. Hey, I was right. Go me. So I'm wondering if trying to explain my experience to people who don't have the skill of validation is a fool's errand. I'm setting myself up to be frustrated because they're not going to get it. There's this attachment that I hear, this attachment to, I need you, you other person to validate me as opposed to being able to do it myself. And again, of course, this is what somebody who has experienced lifelong invalidation would believe. This is like the essence of not trusting my own experience, of not believing my own emotions, of judging my emotions and my thoughts and believing they don't make sense because I keep being told, don't think that, think this other thing, don't feel that, feel this other way, all the time for as long as I can remember. So, of course, I'm attached to other people validating me because I don't have the practice of validating myself. I'm unskilled at that currently so another thing to work on so going back to the wise mind for a second I described my thinking mind of like just get over it my emotion mind of let's self-harm because that's the way we can prove how much pain we're in and then the wise mind of like there's a way to honor and validate my experiences that do not involve self-harm but that do honor the significance of them and that's where kind of my my therapist came in with this homework assignment of taking a look at and give myself credit for the mountains that I've summited around my PTSD. So we're gonna do that for a second. Right here, right now. Zach Efron's gonna start singing in a second. Right here, right now is a song from high school musical. I don't remember which one. Run. Right here right now I'm looking at you and my heart loves the view cause you mean everything Okay, I'm gonna start singing. High school musical three. wouldn't have guessed that one. All right, anyway. Right here, right now, I'm going to look at some of the mountains that I've summited. And what's lovely about this is that DBT, because it's an evidence-based therapy, they're very into metrics and actually like assigning numerical values to things because that's how you can tell that you're making progress. So I'm going to look at my in vivo exposure hierarchy form. This was written down on... January 30th 2017 it was five years ago right in the thick of hmm I had been sexually assaulted nine days before and then I was about to be sexually assaulted the next day and then three days later after that one awesome okay this is a list of people places objects and activities that I was avoiding at the time and so I have a list of the things that I was avoiding or unable to do, and then how intense my distress was around doing those things. So in DBT, they label your distress, uh, they use the acronym SUDS, Subjective Units of Distress, S U D. Zero is like you're totally chill, everything's great. I'm eating ice cream and watching a horror movie and very happy. And then 100 was, for me, I had written down physical pain during trauma. So like the actual physical pain of penetration during a sexual assault. So I had things like saying my rapist's name. That was a 65 out of 100. I actually couldn't say his name. I can say his name all the time now. Saying the phrase, I was raped. That was a 70 for me. I actually couldn't say it. I think I had to write it down to get it on this form because I couldn't I couldn't tell my therapist what it was. I would twitch. I had this kind of involuntary shudder whenever I would say it and whenever somebody else would say it. Seeing people who look like my rapist, that was a 40 out of a hundred. Crying in front of men, that's a forty. Taking a self-care break during work. So like taking the day off was a 70. Taking just an hour self-care break was a 50. Being on my back in hot yoga was an 80. I used to have panic attacks all the time. Missionary position during sex, that was an 80. Being around men my dad's age was a 60. Physical contact with men my dad's age was an 80. Looking at my rapist picture was an 80. Ooh, and touching my self-harm scars, that was a 70. So, like, I can touch my self-harm scars right now. In fact, I am touching them right now. But I had to do exposure therapy to that. We started really small, just imagining. Like, we're just going to sit here, don't touch them, just think about touching them. And then worked my way up to, like, touching them for 15 seconds. And then a minute... And then I think we got up to five minutes, but that was a really intentional practice to be able to do that. Saying his name, same thing. Saying the phrase, I was raped, saying I have a rapist, like kind of any of those. I was really, really struggling in being able to do any of that. And clearly you're, just, you're hearing me right now say that I was raped, <laughs> multiple times in fact. So clearly I've done a lot of work around these things. I'm struggling, actually, to come up with other things, other wins that I've had. So I thought it might be validating to actually look up some information about why people have anniversary reactions. So this is from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs website, and I'll put a link in the description for you. On the anniversary of a traumatic event, some survivors have an increase in distress. These anniversary reactions can range from feeling mildly upset for a day or two to a more extreme reaction with more severe mental health or medical symptoms. Why do people have anniversary reactions? And then there's a quote from an Army veteran. Even if you don't ever make an effort to remember that date, on the day of it just hits me. Anniversary reactions may occur because of the way a traumatic experience is saved in memory. Memories of trauma contain information about the danger that the event involved. The memory helps us be aware of when we should be afraid, how we should look at such situations, how to feel in that situation, and what to think. The trauma memory gives information that may help keep us safe. For example, a memory of a rape might include the information that it's important to beware of strangers at night and to run away if one comes near. The memory might tell survivors to feel fear in this situation and to think they are in danger and need help. Such memories may produce strong feelings as well as bodily reactions. What symptoms go along with anniversary reactions? Anniversary reactions usually make symptoms that are common reactions to trauma or part of PTSD get worse. So there's reliving the event, avoidance, negative changes in beliefs and feelings, feeling keyed up or hyper arousal. The last two in particular for me. Negative changes in beliefs and feelings. When the anniversary of an event is near, it can lead to sadness. Some people may find it hard to connect with friends and family. Old thoughts of guilt or shame may come back. And then feeling keyed up or hyper aroused. A fourth kind of reaction is to feel nervous and on edge. As the anniversary comes, the trauma memory might be so intense that it's hard to sleep or focus on things you need to do. Some people become more jumpy or quick to anger. Others feel like they have to be more on guard. Around an anniversary, survivors may have panic attacks, be afraid to go certain places, or find that they worry more about safety for themselves and their loved ones. For example, a car accident survivor may avoid getting in a car on the anniversary for fear that they'll be hit again. Others may have physical or medical symptoms such as fatigue and pain. They may complain of headaches and stomach aches. A common type of anniversary reaction is feeling grief and sadness on the anniversary of the death of someone close to you. In fact, this is so common that most major religions have special services to support those who feel increased grief at these times. If the reaction is extreme, the survivor may become depressed or even think about suicide. For most people, though, the feelings of sadness at the anniversary don't last more than a brief time. What becomes clear is that there is not one classic anniversary reaction. The anniversary reaction will differ among trauma survivors. It may depend on the type of trauma, how much time has passed since the trauma or loss, the qualities of that person or other factors. What can I do to feel better? Most people will feel better within a week or two after the anniversary. Over time, the stress symptoms will become less frequent and less severe. You may find it helpful to make special plans for the anniversary date. It can help to have other things to occupy your time besides memories of the event. You may choose to take part in a special activity, like visiting a grave, donating to charity, or giving blood. I've thought about that. Like, is it worth it to have some sort of... I don't know what the ceremony would entail. And I actually do think I did this one year. I think I, like, wrote down... I don't remember what I wrote down, but I remember writing things down on slips of paper and then going to the beach and lighting each piece of paper on fire and just kind of letting it blow away. What would be adequate? And I don't really have an answer for that. Partially because it's also, and I I mentioned this earlier in the episode, it's very isolating. I was the only one there who was traumatized, you know? It isn't a large collective grieving event like you would for the anniversary of 9-11 or Pearl Harbor or what have you. It's just me with my group of anniversaries around dates that aren't significant to anybody else. It just feels really super lonely. And I'm having the thought that it would actually be useful to describe what happened to tell the story so that other people understand, can hear it and go, ah, okay, I get it. Maybe that would have me feel less lonely. And then I have the thought, don't do that, you're just gonna drudge it all back up again. Do you wanna really wallow in that? It's another thought I'm having, that talking about it is wallowing. That's a judgment. I really do feel of two minds about it. Because on the one hand, I do want to talk about it. And on the other hand, I don't want to keep bringing it up. I just want to be okay in January. I just want to be able to navigate the month without this low grade. I do like the phrase keyed up. Just kind of irritable, short-tempered. Okay, we're back in the future now, January 31st. Anniversary number three, as it turns out, is today. Towards the end of the recording you just heard, I was kind of struggling to figure out what next steps to take in using the Wise Mind skill. And in listening back to this entire recording, I think I've got an idea. So I described my three states of mind about my anniversaries. Thinking mind was all, get over it, it's done, we're healed, move on. Emotion mind was all, let's self-harm so we can prove how bad things were slash are. And wise mind acknowledges that these traumas, these rapes were a big deal and that they were really bad. And also acknowledges the mountains that I've summited in healing and all the work that I've done. And it acknowledges that there are ways that I can honor the pain and the impact in a way that's not self-harming. So I was really struggling to come up with ways to acknowledge it beyond looking at my past therapy wins, because the wins were nice, but they didn't feel all that great. <laughs> like it didn't feel like a, a real validation of the pain, I guess. So I sat with it and did actually come up with some ways to acknowledge the pain so, ages and ages ago, back in 2016, I wrote a 90 page poem about what happened in the original rape that was in 2012. I wrote about the whole lead up, the actual rape itself, the fallout. I have a whole section just on self harm. And I went back and reread the first two chapters. Chapter one is the lead up, and chapter two is the actual event. And it was actually pretty awesome. I mean, like, actually pretty fucking awesome. Those two chapters were 17 pages. And what's beautiful about it, I haven't read it in years, ever since I wrote it. So that would have been 2016, six years ago. And when I wrote the first draft, where I started was the trip to visit him. And just that trip and the actual event. And I told it the way I remember it, which is with hindsight. I told it knowing how it was going to end up. And it didn't feel right, because when I actually lived it, I didn't live it with hindsight. So I went back, still in 2016, and wrote draft two, which has two new chapters in addition to the pre-existing chapters. So there's two different versions. There's the lead up and the event without hindsight, and then the lead up and the event with hindsight. In order to write the version without hindsight, I had gone back in 2016 and read all of the old emails and messages we'd sent each other. I read my old journal entries so that I could actually get into the headspace of what I felt like leading up to that rape. And again, All of this was when I wrote it. I did all of that while I was writing it back in 2016. And you know what? Reading it was actually super validating. I was reading it again for the first time in six years. And strangely, actually rooting for us to get together. Because I was reminded of how swept away I was by him. Yeah, how excited I was to visit him. And of course, I wasn't seeing any red flags. Yeah, it was just strangely validating to go back and reread that. And also hard as fuck, because it was like watching a horror movie where, you know, the van of teenagers stop to get gas on the way to a remote cabin, and the old man tells them, go back where you came from, and they ignore him, and you're yelling at the screen, listen to the fucking geezer, go home. Typically, we don't know we're in a horror movie while we're in it. Yes, overall, it was extremely validating. And the lovely thing about it was that I didn't have to access those memories myself here and now. I had already done it and wrote the whole thing out six years ago. Because that's one of the challenges when I'm in severe distress or when I'm dealing with his anniversaries and I have this kind of low-grade, keyed-up, kind of just short fuse, I guess, accessing those memories and trying to describe it in this place is really, really challenging and virtually impossible to do without having a significant emotional impact. It was nice to just have those memories already accessed for me and written out in a very narrative, like linear way. The other thing I did to acknowledge the pain was go back and read the chapter in that poem on my self-harm. And that was also super validating, because it's a very eloquent version of me from six years ago, explaining why I self-harmed, what it felt like, the thoughts I had about it. It was just a huge relief to have someone else, i.e. past me, say it all for me. And I read it out loud, so I have a recording of it now. Um, maybe someday I'll put it out in the world, but there was something, something really therapeutic about actually reading it all out loud. Because one of the challenges that I I mentioned in the recording you just heard was struggling to find the words to explain to people what it feels like. And so it wasn't enough to just read the words on the page silently. There was something about saying it. I was like, oh, there are words they all rhyme, (laughs) but there are words. Yeah. So getting back to the whole cope ahead thing, and this is from emotion regulation handout 19. A quick reminder, step one was describe the situation that is likely to prompt problem behavior, check the facts, be specific in describing the situation, name the emotions and actions likely to interfere with using your skills. And I mentioned That the situation is having strong self-harm urges as a result of the anniversaries. And the emotions and actions likely to interfere with me using my skills is judgment around I shouldn't even be having these urges anymore. I should be over the whole thing. So I guess there's shame associated with that. And then step two, if you recall, is Decide what coping or problem-solving skills you want to use in the situation. And I did that. I want to use wise mind. And then be specific. Write out in detail how you will cope with a situation and with your emotions and action urges. Be specific. So I really want to sit with the thought that my experience mattered, that it still matters, and that I can honor it in ways that don't involve self-harm. I want to remind myself that it was And is incredibly painful. And I can reread or listen to the recording of my poem about self-harm, which is super validating and which communicates my pain really effectively without triggering urges. That takes the pressure off of me actually self-harming because I self-harm to communicate to myself my pain, to validate it, to express it, I guess. And that poem actually did a bang-up job of communicating my pain without having to self-harm. Step three in Cope Ahead is imagine the situation in your mind as vividly as possible. Imagine yourself in the situation now, not watching the situation. And then getting more specific, we've got step four, which kind of details exactly how to do that. Rehearse in your mind, coping effectively. Rehearse in your mind exactly what you can do to cope effectively. Rehearse your actions, your thoughts, what you say, and how to say it. Rehearse coping effectively with new problems that come up. Rehearse coping effectively with your most feared catastrophe. Oh, what's weird about anniversaries is is that I've been in and out of the kind of the problematic situation that Cope Ahead is for for the last month, because the problematic situation is having really strong self-harm urges around my anniversaries. Today, I'm actually doing okay. Uh, Yesterday, my self-harm urges were super high. Uh, I was kind of like vibrating with them, and I'm expecting them to get super high again at some point um, before the anniversaries are done in four days. So... I'm going to now rehearse in my mind coping effectively with super high self-harm urges. And step two, where I described how to use wise mind to cope effectively, is basically what I will be doing to rehearse. Sitting with the thought that my experience mattered, it still matters. I'm sitting with a thought that I can honor it in ways that don't involve self-harm. I'm sitting with the thought that it was and is incredibly painful. I'm also practicing accepting that no one else can fully understand my experience because no one no one else has ever had my exact experience. They can get close to understanding it, and there will still be nuance that's unique to me in the same way that there's nuance that's unique to everybody. <sighs> practicing accepting that my experience is valid, even if no one else can ever fully understand it. Ooh. So part of Cope Ahead is writing all of this down. Like you heard me say in step two, write out in detail how you will cope with the situation and with your emotions and action urges. Uh, So I had written down kind of my plan last night, and that's what I'm reading from here. And I was looking at why I have such a strong urge to self-harm, to communicate to myself that my pain was real. Like that's my kind of go-to when I feel invalidated. I'm like, okay, well, when you feel invalidated, let's self-harm. And I was kind of reverse engineering, well, what has you feel invalidated? And one of the thoughts I had was that no one else really understands it fully and that that somehow means that my experience is invalid if no one else can understand it. So that's why I tacked on, I'm practicing accepting that my experience is valid even if no one else can ever fully understand it. And it just hit me. I'm like, oh, that actually, that's the thing to do rather than self-harm is acknowledge that my experience is valid even if no one else thinks it is, even if no one else can fully get it, it's still valid. That feels like kind of a big deal right there, actually. Getting back to rehearsing in my mind, coping effectively, I'm picturing myself listening to recordings of my poem about the lead up and the actual event Listening back to what it felt like in that moment and what it felt like after, and listening back to the part about my self harm, which is basically listening to myself validate myself. And the last item in step four is to rehearse coping effectively with your most feared catastrophe. Worst case scenario would be I have a self harm relapse and check myself back into a mental health hospital, which strangely actually doesn't scare me. It probably should because it's kind of like playing Russian roulette uh, with our healthcare system. There's all manner of abuse and damage that can happen in mental hospitals. So far, my experiences have been largely positive. I've been extremely fortunate and that may not always be the case. My most feared catastrophe. This is not like objective worst case scenario. This is what would feel to me like the worst case scenario. And it would be if I did something to piss off my therapist so badly and so irrevocably that they don't want to work with me anymore and that I will go back to having to find a new therapist and starting over. And were that to happen, I think I could cope with that effectively. I've got my spreadsheet with the 101 therapists that I researched and reached out to. So I can start going down the list again. And if I start having really bad suicidal ideation, I can go back to the hospital. Step five here is to practice relaxation after rehearsing. So I'm going to do some box breathing for a bit here. There's a link in the description to what box breathing is. I typically start at in for five, hold for five, out for five, hold for five. I'm not going to make you listen to me breathe though. (laughs) So I'm going to do it and I'm going to edit it out. But I think it's important that I actually do it right now because I'm kind of keyed up after doing all this kind of imaginal cope ahead. That last step of relaxing after rehearsing the cope ahead is really important because that's what trains my body to know that even if I do get kind of keyed up around this cope head practice, I can relax after that. Like I'm not stuck in that keyed up anxious place. I can regulate. And practicing it just here, sitting on my bed after doing imaginal rehearsing. I'm not actually like in a distressing moment right the second I'm picturing it. I am safe. I'm okay. And doing that relaxing afterwards is what kind of retrains my brain, that it is possible to regulate after feeling that anxiety. So that's cope ahead. And coping ahead is different for each situation that I'm coping ahead for. Like in this case, I was coping ahead for having strong self-harm urges during an anniversary and in going through this whole process, I figured wise mind would be the most effective thing to do. And there are other situations where I've used completely different skills, like problem solving or opposite action or mindfulness or what have you. It's different each time I do it. Anywho, this is a very, very long episode, and there's going to be more. There's going to be a part two or volume two coming up because. The recording that I made at the beginning of this month is three hours long, and I'm only uploading the first hour of that here, so there will be more coming. I just need to go back and listen to the rest of it. So as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, corrections, any other things that start with the letter C or really any other letter of the alphabet, Do feel free to reach out. All the links to how you can get in touch with me are in the description. And um, thanks again to Anne for supporting me on Patreon. And if you're interested in doing the same, there is a link in the description for that as well. All right. I'm just going to sign off now and end this, oh, just super abrupt. This has been Let's Therapize That Shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. I'll see you next time. Intro and outro music is Swan Lake, Opus 20 by Tchaikovsky, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anatoly Fistulari, and released on LP by Richmond High Fidelity London Records in 1952.